0: Well, I want to bring to your attention something we talked about a few weeks ago when we started this series. Uh, We talked about why we're studying the Gospel of John and really why the whole book was written to begin with. And the answer to that question is in the second to last chapter, John 20, verse 30. Here's what John the writer said about the book he was writing. He said, "...the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book." But these are written so that you, may be, that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So John is writing this to help us, not just to inform us, but, he, but maybe even to inspire us to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, to, to kind of lay out the case. Here's why Jesus is worthy of your faith, and, and here is the path to experiencing life And power in his name. Here's, in essence, here is your road to get to know the Messiah who will deliver you. And as we've been talking about this series, we've kind of framed the first section of John this way that your story is better than you think. And if you remember back on Christmas Sunday, we uh, began this series with this statement that once you join God's family by believing in Jesus, you become a part of his amazing eternal story. Um, that what Jesus is doing is so amazing in this world, transformational, but also in the next world, in, in eternity, it lasts forever. Your story gets to merge with his story the day you put your faith in Jesus because you become a member of his family. And so then when you think about your family and your identity, now it's a part of something way, way bigger than anything on earth. And then we've looked at throughout the Gospel of John, you might even be able to say the whole book is kind of just another one of these, how the Gospel spreads person to person is so simple, that someone shares their story of meeting Jesus, so that's in essence John is sharing his story of meeting Jesus, And, and as you share that story, you say to the person, would you like to meet Jesus as well? And they come, and so you're just simply testifying and then introducing. And we saw John the Baptist did that at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. We saw various disciples doing that. Last week, Pastor Dell came and shared with us some of the surprises that we saw in in, in Samaria, that Jesus was different than what people would have expected. He was breaking down barriers people thought couldn't be broken down. And once again, that, that woman that was reached with the gospel in Samaria, what did she do? She went to her village and she testified, come see a man who told me everything I did. Maybe he's the Messiah. Do you want to come and meet him? And what did the whole village do? They all came out and they met him and they too believed in Jesus. And so over and over again, we see this pattern in John 2 and 3 and 4. We see introductions to the Messiah and how Jesus interacts with people and their faith grows every time they see Jesus at work. He's better than anything they thought, well, at least most of them. There were a handful who weren't happy with Jesus, and that's who we meet in chapter 5 in a little bit more of a personal way. We've seen them before already in the story, but now we get to hear The debate that ensues and we get to see a little window into their soul and how far off from God they are, really how far even from common sense they are. All right. So here we we meet them. It's the religious elites. The more they see of Jesus, the more they hate him the more that each miracle he performs makes them burn with jealousy. Each teaching he offers where he tells the truth makes them step back either in disgust at what he's saying or in silent conviction and thus anger resulting from that in what he's saying. And so as the crowds are getting more and more interested in Jesus, the the common people out there are thinking, like, maybe he is the Messiah. Like, we should follow him. We should walk around with him. We should become his disciples. Here are the religious elites, the Jewish leaders. They're actively starting to plot, how can we get rid of this guy? How can we kill him? So here at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, we see um, he's threatening so much of what these Jewish leaders have come to accept as their normal uh, that they just, it's, it's almost like they're blind to the miracles. I was struck by that when Pat was reading the first part of chapter 5, weren't you? That that here a person who had been lame for decades publicly sitting there, Jesus comes by, he heals him, take up your mat and go home, and here this guy leaps up and his legs are instantly restored and he starts to walk around and, and the leaders come to him, what do they say? Hey, you're carrying your mat on a Sabbath day, how dare you? That's breaking the law. Like, they're, they're so blind to the miracles, they're so blind to the power that's at work in Jesus that they can't see past. this. It's as if there's a veil uh, hanging over their face. Even though the light is right in front of them, they can't see it. So you could ask, why was what Jesus was saying so offensive to these Jewish leaders? I mean, why didn't they do what everyone else, what it would seem would be a reasonable response. Why wouldn't they curiously keep following him? Or like Nicodemus did in chapter 3, why wouldn't all of them say, you know, Jesus, we think we want to have a meeting with you and hear you out. Like, obviously something's going on here. You have all this power, so why wasn't there an open-hearted response? Here's a few reasons, not not all the reasons, but a few. One is, we, we learned about this a couple weeks ago, he collapsed their sham worship At the temple. That's when Jesus went in and he flipped over the tables of the money changers and he drove all the animals out and that they had turned the temple into this big profit-making center and it was all corrupt. And Jesus he blows the lid off of it and, and he tells the truth, the truth that probably a lot of the pilgrims who came to Jerusalem would have secretly been thinking, but you can't go up against the religious elites, right? I mean, you can't you can't criticize the high priest. So Jesus does. Jesus doesn't care what they think. Uh, another thing, confounded the best of their teachers. Uh, you see this time and again throughout the Gospels, when, when they would come and they would think, okay, we've got him. We've got some sort of logical trap or some sort of legal trap. We can get him to say the wrong thing, and then everybody will realize he's a liar, he's not the Messiah. So they, they bring these things, and Jesus has these amazing, divinely inspired answers to all of their uh, attempts at befuddling him, and it turns the tables, and so they're just getting more and more upset about this. He called out their hypocrisy regarding the Torah. Uh, the Torah refers to the first component of the Old Testament, the laws that they followed. And these people were highly devoted. I mean, that's what their whole identity was wrapped up in. So if you were imagining what, a, what these Jewish leaders might have looked like, um, in our day and age, maybe you would think of like Gandalf the Grey, Right? Um, flowing robes, important, uh, you know, everything that's on him is sort of represents something. The staff is really important. The emblem, the long beard, obviously very wise, very storied, very learned. And so here, these were not people that you would mess with. They're certainly not people you would disrespect publicly. They they had grown accustomed to that, so they they liked the notoriety. They they had lots of pomp and circumstances. They would go about their rituals to pray and their giving at the temple and their 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 speeches and their oration. I mean, everybody would clap and be excited and go, "Wow, those are so such holy men! Like what esteemed leaders!" and and there there's, of course there's all this politics happening behind the scenes with Rome and these these guys were you know competing for power and making sure that that no one ever you know, sort of infringed on their ability to control people. So you had all of this going on. Jesus walks in and just so obviously and blatantly calls out their hypocrisy. And over and over again, you see him saying things like he did at the very end of chapter 5, saying right, right to their face, you don't even believe Moses. You don't even believe what he wrote. Here you're teaching all this stuff. So, there, again, you just imagine the tension rising, right? The blood pressure rising in these guys as they, as they realize Jesus is threatening everything that they stand for. He's attacking their very identity. Uh, he's cutting down their source of power. And meanwhile, people are following Jesus instead of them. So over, so just every piece of the story you're seeing as we're meeting Jesus and we're kind of looking for the good and we're like, wow, Jesus is loving and he's sharing about loving your enemies and he's healing people who are sick and he's casting out demons and that's all making us as open-hearted people love Jesus more and that's making these Pharisees and teachers of the law and religious leaders step back and hate Jesus even more. Number four is where he crosses the line in their mind. You could almost imagine... One through three, maybe they just try to ostracize him. Maybe they discredit him. Maybe they run fake news against him or something. But man, when you get to number four, now you're treading into blasphemy territory in the mind of a religious leader. When you start saying that it's not just that you're here as a good rabbi or maybe you're a better rabbi or like, hey, you shouldn't listen to that rabbi, come to my church instead. Like, Jesus doesn't just do that. Jesus actually says, I am the son of God. I am the truth. I am the Messiah. And now they think they've got him. Well, they're religious leaders, you could almost imagine they're kind of excited when he says this because now they're like, yes, we nailed him. Nobody's allowed to say that. The penalty for blasphemy should be what? Death, right? I mean, immediately, like you can't have people uttering blasphemy against God that way. So they're getting excited about this opportunity to finally discredit Jesus. And then number five, I think it's kind of humorous. That, you know, if, if, if Jesus had said all of this, but if he had, like, paid the proper homage to the all the guys that look like Gandalf, like, you could almost imagine them going along with it, right? Or at least looking the other way a little bit. Obviously, they were willing to do that in the temple at all the corruption there. And, I mean, if Jesus would have just, like, sort of paid his dues, or uh, if he just would have, you know, like, directed people back to the ultimate authority of the religious leaders in the Sanhedrin, then, you know, maybe... Maybe they could have put up with it, but what really got in their craw was that Jesus didn't care what they thought, okay? Now, we just read the whole narrative together, but zoom in on chapter 5, verse 41. I just think set apart, it's actually a really funny verse, kind of a thug life verse. Um, Check it out, verse 41, Jesus says, to these people who are so important, your approval means nothing to me. <laughs> which, which, would that not be the ultimate insult to give to someone? I mean, try saying that to someone in your family. You know, it's just, it's, that's not a very nice thing to say to someone, right? Hey, just by the way, your approval means nothing to me. And then Jesus literally looks at those guys and that's what he says to them. So, of course, they're angry uh, because they realize he is not playing the game that everybody else in their culture would have played of trying to get in the good graces of the people who are influential. Jesus doesn't care. He says what's true, and here we have them, you know, kind of very obviously, hating him. So, in the context that we're reading today, we're going to walk through this little by little, Jesus made multiple claims that were extremely bold. Not just claims that he had sort of a better way of teaching, or here's, a, here's some additions to the moral code No, claims about himself that you would have to end up saying either Jesus is absolutely crazy or we need to really listen to what he's saying. Okay, so here's three bold claims that Jesus made and they all required a response. The religious leaders of the day, they chose their response. It was to push back at everything that Jesus represented. You have a choice right now as you encounter these claims to decide how will will you respond Well, the reason I would say that they require a response is because they're not the sort of claims that you could go away and say, oh, I kind of halfway agree with that guy. Or, you know, I'll float with part of that, but I'll leave the rest on the table. No, these are like absolute statements that you either have to believe or not believe. And here's the first one. Jesus claimed that he could give people eternal life. No other rabbi out there would do that. No one would have the right to do that, right? Who, who, who has the right to determine life and death? I mean, you know the answer. Who, who would it be? God. And so when Jesus comes along and says, I and my Father are always working, and the Father has given me the ability to judge and the ability to give life, suddenly all these religious leaders are stepping back Part of them, I think, you know, part of it is they're horrified at the blasphemy they've just heard, but we've kind of learned better that in a lot of their hearts, it wasn't like they'd really loved God that much either. They're stepping back thinking, okay, now we've got him. Now he's gone way, way too far. The crowds are going to abandon him. This, we have a right now to bring legal charges against him. Um, this is this. Is a, they're, they're excited. And remember, these are all kind of lawyer types, right? So, this is, this is a lot like if you're operating in Washington, D.C., and you talk into a microphone, and everybody starts parsing your words. And, like, oh, then if you just say the tiniest thing wrong, boom, they've got you, and you're sitting in some trial somewhere, right? So, So, here that's what's happening to Jesus. And what the problem is, they don't know who they're up against here. So, Jesus says in verse. Well, actually, let's jump back to verse 16 just to kind of see the context of where these claims come from. So, so the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. That was their first little twist. When they, you know, Jesus healed a guy, you'd think everybody would be jumping up and down with excitement. But no, the guy picked up his mat. That breaks the rule. Uh, therefore, this is all invalid. Therefore, don't listen to Jesus. And you could almost imagine this as a crowd kind of smirking, like, I mean, what, what in the world? This is a miracle that's just happened. But no, these, these religious leaders are resolute on disproving who Jesus is. And, uh, and so Jesus then goes ahead and starts to push their buttons, right? And he starts to he starts to tell them things that, man, it's just going to make them more and more upset the more they hear. The more Jesus keeps talking, the more, the, more the pressure is rising. So verse 20. The Father loves the Son and shows him everything he's doing. In fact, the Father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then you'll be truly astonished. For just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to anyone he wants. Jesus claimed to have the power of life and death right there in his hands. Verse 24, was on the screen here. He says, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. So here Jesus makes this claim, and you have to decide what you'll do with that. Is it true? Or is Jesus crazy as he says this? Now there's another layer to the claim here. Jesus claimed that he would be the judge of all people, At verse 22. In addition, the Father judges no one. Instead, he has given the Son absolute authority to judge, so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So here Jesus confronting these leaders. He's basically saying right to their face, not only do I have the power of life, but I'm going to judge everyone, including you. And you don't get to judge me standing here trying to make me prove who I am. You, I, This is the other way around. I'm judging you. But you can just imagine the shock, the horror, the disdain that that would cause in the, in the heart of someone who's filled with pride, filled with self-righteousness, full of themselves. That someone would have the audacity to judge them. And yet that's exactly what Jesus has every right to do and what he told them he was going to do. Uh, I think it's interesting throughout the New Testament, you see this, not just in John, that we tend to see Jesus like in the, in the art that we would depict Jesus, right? Like holding a sheep and hugging little children, thing, being like very kind and loving. And, and that's very true. But when Jesus came up against proud, evil, hypocritical hearts, he didn't pull punches. He was willing to play hardball. He was willing to bring out, he he was willing to put them in their place. So, Jesus says this, All the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. And those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life. And those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. And who's going to do that judgment? Jesus is. So here again, Just like the people in the first century that we're reading about, we also have to reckon with this claim. I mean, here Jesus is saying he will judge you someday. You'll stand before him. Do you believe that? Or do you say, no, I think Jesus was crazy when he said that. Here is a third claim that we have to do something with, that we have to respond to. Jesus claimed that the sacred scriptures were actually about him. Like if there was anything left on the table that could be offensive to the Pharisees or to the teachers of the law or the ruling council, this would be it, right? So not only are you going to make all these claims about yourself, call God your father in a familial way and violate propriety and potentially blaspheme, but now you're going to look at the sacred text itself and say... That, the, the word of God that you've been memorizing and pouring over and spending your whole life studying, guess what? All of that is about me, and yet you're refusing to come to me. So Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. The scriptures point to me. And then if you look at the very end of chapter 5, he says, it's not I who accuse you before the Father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses, in whom you put your hope. So Moses would have been, you know, he, he was the, the author of the law. So they're looking at all that going, you know, we believe the law of Moses. We, be, that's, that's the, that's, we, we know that's true. That's what they were saying. And Jesus just calls them out and says, you know, Moses talked about me. You don't believe Moses. Why are you going to believe me? So if you're a Pharisee, if you're a chief priest, if you're some Sadducee power broker out there, how do you feel after this exchange? <laughs> Not very good, right? So you can understand where they've been forced now to make a decision. What will we do with this guy? He, the crowds are growing who follow him. Their power is weakening. He's saying things that everyone knows in their heart are true. He's calling out their hypocrisy. Their power and their livelihood are threatened by this. So they have some choices to make. Here are their options. The religious elites knew they had to make a choice about Jesus. A, they could believe in him and follow him. There were a handful that did this. Later in the story, in John 12, we actually read a verse where it says many of the Pharisees believed in Jesus. Like it just started to become more the, the evidence that you couldn't get around it. It was actually after the, the miracle in John 11 when Lazarus was raised from the dead. Like the people who were still holding out that had at least a little bit of openness in their heart, like their reason for resistance wasn't necessarily pride, maybe it was tradition, or maybe it was the opinions of their parents or something, those people finally had to say, okay, uh, <laughs> obviously Jesus is the Messiah, there's just no way. There's no other way to explain what we're seeing. Okay, so that would be one option. Another option would be to ignore him, but become irrelevant in their world, um, the reason that that was a choice was because uh, you, you could imagine that would have been the easier play, right? Just kind of let this little rebellion burn itself out. Let let all, the people follow Jesus. He'll eventually die. It'll go. We'll, we'll all go back to normal. The problem was these people were vested in the, the political power structure of the day. That their their sense of identity and their sense of having their own following as important rabbis that was being threatened because people were following Jesus instead of them. So they really couldn't ignore him unless they were willing to just kind of give up their identity, and they weren't willing to do that. Okay? They could reject him and treat him as a blasphemer and then try to kill him, and that's what a lot of them sadly chose. We learn later that was part of God's plan. It was all laid out here, but in, in, in an individual sense, I feel bad for those people who made that choice, that there the light was shining directly in front of their face Not only could they not see it, but they had to resist it, um, and they wanted to kill it. And then option D was to keep listening, willing to believe, but maybe not yet decided. And I would put Nicodemus in this category. We looked at him a couple weeks ago in chapter 3. There were some of these Jewish leaders who saw all the things that were going on. They watched the temple be cleaned out, and maybe they agreed with that in their heart. Or they heard what Jesus said, and they thought, Oh, he he might be calling us back to the right thing. They saw the miracles. They thought, "We We can't deny there's something real here. And so they left the door open in their heart to believe. And eventually, many of them did. So those are the choices that they had as Jesus starts putting the pressure on them as hypocrites, as leaders who should have been leading the nation toward their Messiah, but instead were keeping the Messiah from them. Uh, Now, if you were thinking, man, Jesus, like, it's like he pushed every single button that could make them angry, right? There's actually another one that he's going to push in chapter 8 when we get there, where he takes it to an even, like, even a more extreme level when he looks at this same crowd and he says... You basically you think God is your heavenly father. Guess what? The devil is your father. <laughs> and so, so like if, if there's anybody who's like, oh, let's like let's be moderate here, man, that was out the window. So we'll get to that in John eight, uh, as Jesus is really forcing everyone he meets to make a choice. Uh, it's really not possible to walk up to Jesus to get to know him to see what he's doing and to walk away a halfway believer, or to walk away saying like, yeah, I really appreciate that guy, but. I don't know if I'm going to follow him, but maybe we can be friends. Like, just, that just wasn't an option. You were either with him or you were against him uh, because of the claims he was making. So, we get to make the same choice. If you think of it, we actually have those same four choices that those first Jewish leaders would have as they encountered Jesus. You could choose to believe in what Jesus has done, what he teaches, what he represents, the, the miracles, the And then, you know, the rest of the story that isn't in John yet here, but we'll get to it a little later, with uh, the cross and the resurrection. Like, you could say, I I recognize when Jesus makes these claims, uh, I'm going to choose to believe what he says. You could be one who tries to ignore what he says, thinking that maybe you could just sort of get away with not really believing. Uh, You could reject. You could just up and declare, I'm not going to believe this. Or you could keep listening. You could be like Nicodemus, where you could say, you know, I... I I feel like I need to read the rest of the Gospel of John, or I need more information here, but my heart is open. My only coaching to you, or warning to you, if you choose option four there, is to not use that as a politically correct way to just ignore him. So if you're saying, like, you know what, later in my life, I'll really think, think this through. Just not ready right now. That's not continuing to listen. Listening would be active listening, where you're actually, I'm willing to search this out and get to the answer. Uh, But I really don't think you can come to Jesus honestly and walk away sort of halfway, halfway committed. Uh, This is all or nothing. All right, so I have a challenge for you this week, kind of a practical challenge, just to kind of keep this in our mind's eye and maybe take a few next steps. Uh, Here it is. To give three minutes each morning this week, to contemplation and prayer about eternal life. Think of it, the the, one of the I mean the bold claim of Jesus is that he holds the key to life. And that if you believe in him, you'll be given the gift of eternal life. So so like your whole existence could fundamentally change based on what Jesus would do for you. Everything could be different. And and I, I feel like I don't give that enough consideration in my average day. Um, you know, I'm busy with the kids and work and responsibilities and other things that all are sort of, I mean, they're good things, but they're on, in this world. And it's easy to get through a day and not really consider the bigger picture. That eternity is like, that's in view. And and, and so well, the, the challenge here is to take a few minutes each morning and just contemplate that, to pray about that, to think of the amazing gift that Jesus is holding out before you, or if you're a Christian that you've already taken, and then to look ahead to that. Essentially, I would say, maybe 20 or 30 years ago in, in the culture of churches that we're a part of, um, there, was, there was so much emphasis on eternal life that it was almost like it didn't matter what you did with your life right now. Everybody was just worried about, like, you know, are you going to heaven? And so a, a really needed correction has occurred where instead of talking about that all the time, like, so no, no, like, you, it's this, the whole proposition here of Jesus is not just, can you go to heaven?, He's actually interested in your life today. Like every, every bit of your life, every minute of your life starting right now should change. Right? But now I wonder, is the pendulum swung the other way so far that now we don't think about eternal life at all? And we could go through whole days or weeks and not really even consider heaven or glory or future. And so the challenge of, of this week is just to let that set in your heart a little bit. Um, I, I find that for me, if I get going in my day... Um, basically, once I start the routine, moments of silence and contemplation don't happen very easily. Anybody else with me on that? Uh, so so there's this magic moment somehow between the moment your alarm rings and that you don't go back to sleep and that you start all this other stuff. Somewhere in that moment, uh, to, take a few, to take three minutes is kind of my recommended time here, just to, just to let it be enough time to really think. And, and just to think about eternal life. To think about what God has designed you for, and how God has invited you into this amazing eternal story. So there's a few starter verses there that you could use that we've already studied from John that you could look up and just let that be a, a starting place for your prayer or for meditation in the morning. And, uh, and I want to believe that after a week of just giving those three-minute segments to the Lord in the morning, uh, that, that my perspective uh, might be a little bit better next Sunday than it is here today. So I want to invite you to join, join me in that challenge uh, to think about what Jesus has really promised and offered uh, to you and I. All right, so let's pray and we can start that uh, that process right now. Uh, Lord Jesus, we see in the things that you taught that our lives can be so much more than what we just see right in front of us, That there's, that there is eternal life out ahead, that you've allowed us to, to step into and that, Lord, we can cross over from death to life today and start this new quality of life, this new kind of life that redefines everything about every minute of our existence now and forever. And, uh, and so, Lord, we want to be mindful of that this week. As we see, Lord, the claims that you made in the scripture, I, I know, I'm well aware that there are Many evidences and proofs we could look at that would help build up our faith in those claims. And there's also doubts that come to our minds. And there's reasons that people might give us to doubt what you said. Lord, in, in the end, we, we recognize that those doubts are laid to rest not by an argument or a sermon, but by meeting you in a personal way. And so for those in the room who may have never taken that important step of faith, simply to meet you, simply to come and discover what those we're reading about in this book say and what many others in the room have found, that you indeed are the Messiah and you do have transformational power that uh, can heal and forgive and give life. Um, Lord, I pray for those people who are in that place, that they would keep listening, keep learning. Lord, I pray for anyone in the room today who might have already declared that they are rejecting you, that they're just not interested, that, Lord, if there's any openness in their heart, and maybe that's demonstrated by the fact that they're still sitting here, uh, that you would give them a clear sense of your presence in their life, that you would show them your power, uh, that you would give them, just by your own grace, Lord, an opportunity to come back to you. And uh, Lord, for those of us who believe, who have seen you at work in our lives and in the lives of those around us, we have read the scripture and we see that it does point to you, uh, help us to be faithful, to testify to that, and to invite many others to follow you. Lord, we thank you so much for giving us these accounts, these biographies in the scripture, the gospels, that we can get to know you um, how you would interact with those who are in need, uh, how you would be gracious to someone like the Samaritan woman that we learned about last week, or how you could um, how you would lovingly confront uh, people like we 're hearing about this week, those who, for whatever reason in their hearts have allowed themselves to get so hard that even an obvious miracle doesn 't phase them, so Lord, uh, help us to walk with you and to hear what your word is saying to our heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you and we'll see you next week.